Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Dialogues in Dermatology. My name is Slovina Puglisi, and I am a clinical assistant professor of dermatology at Stanford University. I have the distinct pleasure today of interviewing Dr. Allison Dobry. We will be discussing the December 2021 JAD article, Clinical Mimickers of Calciphylaxis, a retrospective study. I'd like to start by mentioning that Dr. Dobry is a board-certified dermatologist currently completing a complex medical dermatology fellowship at UCSF. She is a graduate of UC Irvine Dermatology Residency, serving as chief resident in her final year, and she was a medical student at Harvard, which is where she first began studying and researching calciphylaxis with Dr. Daniela Kuczynski. Dr. Dobry, I'm so excited to have you here today, and thank you so much for participating in this dialogue. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of years of research in the making. And I think we kind of in combination with uh, Dr. Daniela Krasinski and many of her research fellows that have been helping out, we've been able to put a really awesome set of articles out throughout the years. And in particular, are very grateful to have this article focused on in this current JAD, especially through this podcast, so that we can discuss all of our findings a little bit more in detail. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk about this topic. I think it's incredibly pertinent to dermatologists everywhere. And I'd love to open by learning more about your interest in calciphylaxis and where the idea for this project came from. Yeah, so I originally got involved in this back during a research year that I took off in between my third and fourth years at Harvard. I was actually working in a basic science lab at the time in a pigment biology lab with Dr. David Fisher, but I felt that I want to see up more exposure to clinical dermatology and see different types of dermatology that are out there. And so someone recommended that I work with Dr. Daniela Krasinski. And at the time, she had been kind of locally known in the hospital as having a big specialty on calciflaxis, so much so that she actually got many referrals throughout the whole New England area due to her expertise in calciflaxis. And Because of her kind of wealth of patients, she discussed about kind of collecting these patients and answering several clinical questions that she was running into during the time. So the first paper I actually worked on her was looking at figuring out if there's any certain hypercoagulable conditions that might be associated with calciflaxis. But a lot of that kind of blossomed into subsequent papers, looking into different sorts of diagnostics, special presentations of calciflaxis, and different treatment options. Wonderful. And why don't we start by talking a little bit, if you could just maybe define what calciphylaxis is for all of our listeners and what it might present like and what we should be looking out for as clinicians. Yeah, so I think the simplest way that I've heard calciphylaxis described is that you can think of it as a heart attack of the skin. So you can kind of think of it in two different steps. The first step being that there might be some dysregulation that's leading to calcification of the small and medium vessels in the dermis and subcutaneous tissues. And then the second hit that happens is some sort of local thrombi that then cuts off circulation to the area of skin, leading to ulceration from necrosis. And so just like a heart attack, the skin is damaged and 
you know, when it recovers, it'll be starred, but in that interim, it's a little bit different in that the skin is exposed to the outside environment and is at a very high risk of infection. And this overall leads to a very significant mortality in patients because these ulcers can take a very long time to heal. And mortality is not really clearly estimated, but can be definitely as high as 50%, perhaps even higher, there's a really large range. So it's something to take very seriously. So the clinical presentation of calciflaxis is that of an ulcer, usually in adipose-rich tissues. Most often this happens in patients with end-stage renal disease. And the morphology is a little bit unique and I think important to get into. So early on, usually this presents as painful skin nodules or indurated plaques. They're usually pretty firm to palpation and often associated with an overlying lividoid pattern or maybe a modeling. And what's really unique with calciflaxis is that they are exquisitely painful lesions. And this is not a common presentation of other forms of vasculopathy. Eventually, these skin nodules and plaques can evolve into livido and then eventually evolve into a true retiform purpura. After a little bit longer, this will eventually transform into eschar and then into these necrotic ulcerative plaques that we kind of most classically see with calciflaxis. The tricky part is we often see patients with this later stage and figuring out how to identify these lesions earlier on with the more subtle findings is really critical. That's such an important point because I agree that when it is a later stage presentation, it's suddenly so obvious, but for the patients that present early on, it can be really tricky. And that's why I love how you and the rest of the authors laid out some of the common clinical mimickers and some of the clinical features that those entities uh, present with, and also some of the distinguishing features of calciphylaxis, because I agree it's so important to catch this early on in terms of our interventions. Could we spend a little bit of time talking about some of the main mimickers that your team identified? Yeah, so I just want to thank the lead author on this study, Colleen Gable, for for piecing this together. She was Dr. Daniela Krasinski's most recent research fellow, and she did a wonderful job going through the different clinical mimickers that can often be initially misdiagnosed for calciflaxis. So... In summary, I just wanted to point out a few key points that we found in this paper. So kind of the the main finding I want to point out is that almost three quarters of patients with calciflaxis who presented were originally misdiagnosed. Mm -hmm. And this is an extremely large proportion for a disease with such high morbidity and mortality. And the specialties that most often first interacted with calciflaxis patients were emergency medicine primary care and inpatient internal medicine. And the time to diagnosis after an initial misdiagnosis was significantly different in that diagnosis was delayed almost a month for those who originally had a misdiagnosis with a different condition. Other conditions that are often misdiagnosed instead of calciflaxis might be cellulitis, peripheral vascular disease, hematomas, venous stasis, and some of the original providers just documented patients as having these nonspecific skin lesions. Mm -hmm. And it creates a lot of issues in that patients get much more delayed care with this misdiagnosis. They might get 
unnecessary care, like unnecessary courses of antibiotics. And the big issue with calciflaxis is the longer we let this go on, the larger the ulcers can grow. And that just takes so much longer for the ulcers to heal and really elevates the risk of subsequent infection and potential sepsis with these patients who often are already in a fragile health state. And with the description that you gave of the progression of calciphylaxis, different phases of its, of its clinical appearance, it's interesting how that does make it so much more challenging to diagnosis because it's not always going to have the same clinical appearance. Can you speak to some of the risk factors for development of calciphylaxis that maybe can help solidify this diagnosis or put it a little bit higher up on the list of your, your differential? Yeah, a lot of people have put a lot of work in and trying to understand different risk factors. I think kind of the two main ones that have really stood out kind of the test of time and through multiple studies is patients with end-stage renal disease. And I think in I think in this paper, one of the other papers, maybe about three quarters of patients will have this. And we like to call this nephrogenic calciphylaxis. Mm-hmm. And the other big risk factor is warfarin use. And so I think in these two populations, if you see patients who present with ulceration that have been going on for a prolonged period of time to really have calciflaxis on the top of your differential. And you mentioned that many of these misdiagnoses were made by practitioners outside of dermatology. So what do you have any recommendations, if there are any recommendations on how to best educate, not only ourselves, of course, we're all in need of education, but um, also some of the, for example, emergency medicine physicians or, you know, primary care hospitalists who might be seeing these patients initially. Yeah. So I think there are so many settings in which these patients can first be encountered. I think at least from the academic hospital perspective, it's really important to have a strong inpatient dermatology team and to have really good inpatient dermatologists who communicate regularly with other teams. And I've learned this a lot, both from my current fellowship mentor, Dr. Lenny Fox, and then Dr. Daniela Krasinski, who, when she was at MGH, did a wonderful job at regularly holding grand rounds within other specialty departments and interfacing with primary care, internal medicine, nephrology and emergency medicine doctors in, in signs of early calciflaxis. And on, and it was funny when I was reviewing the MGH internal medicine guide, they actually have a section on calciflaxis and that really speaks to how, how good of a job, job she's done with communicating. In other areas, it is harder in the outpatient setting. I think for dermatologists practicing in the community, it's important to try and refer patients who are suspicious for this to an academic medical center that has a dermatologist who might have more experience with this. And also most importantly, to have a good dermatopathologist available who is familiar with interpreting calciflaxis biopsies and understanding the nuances between that and other types of vasculopathies. Other things in general that could be helpful are having teledermatology or specialty clinics that might facilitate early access to patients with urgent concerns. And I think all of those things together can be helpful, but it is definitely tough at the end of the day, reaching out to our colleagues and other specialties. 
Absolutely. But it sounds like, you know, there's a lot that we can do within dermatology to help improve the diagnosis of these patients, including improved access, increase in hospital consultations, and obviously by wonderful research like Dr. Kuczynski and all have done in terms of educating all of us and how to better diagnose calciphylaxis. And interestingly, you know, one of the top misdiagnoses that was noted was cellulitis, which is something that is a diagnosis that often is used when actually there is something else going on. I think we've all seen consults for uh, bilateral cellulitis, for example. So I think that's a good message that as dermatologists, we are consulting on these patients. To It's important to remember that patients with calciflaxis can be misdiagnosed with cellulitis, since often we're not going to necessarily think of the two diagnoses in the same bucket when we think about the final or, you know, class classic presentation of calciphylaxis. But you did mention briefly the role of dermatopathology. And I know one thing that is often done for these patients is biopsy. And often the results are inconclusive. And I know that, uh, you know, I have experienced definitely sometimes the consulting teams thinking, well, it can't be calciphylaxis because, you know, the biopsy didn't show that. So I wanted to just hear your thoughts on the role of biopsy and the diagnosis of calciphylaxis. Yeah, I think it's a great discussion, actually, just in general, in the field of dermatology and the role of biopsies. I think one big struggle that we come into with inpatient dermatology is that other teams might not want to treat for a certain dermatologic condition until they have biopsy evidence. And I think it's a little bit funny because biopsies at the end of the day are also a, a subjective interpretive test. So we had noticed this for a while with calciflaxis and ended up actually doing a research project on this. So I did this with Dr. Krasinski as well earlier on looking to see what the sensitivity of biopsies were and if any certain types of biopsies might be more helpful in yielding a greater positive result. And overall, we found that the sensitivity of initial biopsy was only about 50%, which is really poor. Sometimes patients when they got repeat biopsies did have a positive diagnosis in the end, but biopsies have significant morbidity for these patients as well, especially because there might be a certain triggering or worsening of lesions when you biopsy one of these patients and they already tend to have poor healing. So I think this has kind of suggested that clinical diagnosis should be considered as, as valid in these patients. And I think the tough part with this is really communicating with the other teams and having a lot of other points you can go to, to, su to support your diagnosis of calciflaxis. This is tricky because in the past we've encountered nephrologists who might not want to start patients on intravenous sodium thiosulfate, or maybe different insurance companies have not wanted to cover intravenous sodium thiosulfate without a biopsy. So I think that this previous paper that I did was at least important in showing that biopsies do have a low sensitivity. I just wanted to comment on what the biopsies do most typically find, and that is that you would see calcification of small and medium-sized dermal and subcutaneous vessels. But within this paper that's in JAD this month, found that only 23% of patients had the combination of medial vascular calcification with fibrin thrombi. So there is a lot of variability. Thanks. That's so helpful. So we talked a little bit about, you know, some of the risk factors that might point you towards calciphylaxis, some of the common mimickers, the role of biopsy. Do we have any other uh, methods kind of in our diagnostic arsenal to help diagnose calciphylaxis? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I think 
the other thing that we've come to use in some of these tricky situations or in these situations where biopsies haven't necessarily yielded a result is imaging. So at this point in time, there's not actually a standardized imaging tool that we can use, but a lot of people have been exploring different options for imaging. Dr. Krasinski did do a paper earlier on that looked at the role of radionuclide bone scans for diagnosing calciflaxis and found that it actually did have a pretty high sensitivity and specificity. And so how this works is that patients with calciflaxis will see higher radio tracer uptake in the areas where the plaques and nodules are. And it's kind of interesting, this radio tracer uptake is higher in the earlier calciflaxis stages compared to later on when they ulcerate. Also, interestingly, is that you actually see a decrease in the radio tracer uptake after these patients start intravenous sodium thiosulfate therapy. There's a lot of other imaging options that have been used in the past. So some people might suggest using CT scans. You can see net like patterns of calcification there. There might be some use for actually using that in combination with ultrasound. So say if the imaging findings show calcification and then you do Doppler ultrasound that shows intact perfusion that is supportive of calciflaxis over, say, peripheral vascular disease. Sometimes it's hard to get buy-in from the inpatient team, the medicine team, to do the imaging that you want. And I had one patient who had a concern for calciflaxis on the penis, and I think maybe there was some contraindication of him getting contrast. And so I walked over to the resident room and just asked and said, you know, I know this sounds kind of crazy, but we'd be able to get an x-ray of the patient's penis and specifically say that to the radiology technicians. And they did it. And ultimately there actually was subcutaneous calcifications and it helped us since that diagnosis. But you do have to be a little bit creative in terms of your workup. Other than imaging, there's been some consideration about other lab workups and there can be different things that can be suggestive of calciflaxis, maybe an elevated calcium phosphate product, just pretty significant altered values and mineral parameters in general. And then I did a previous study with Dr. Krasinski and found that lupus anticoagulants and combined thrombophilias are seen in specifically calciflaxis patients with end-stage renal disease as compared to patients with end-stage renal disease in general. But I don't think that these are overall the most specific as compared to biopsy or maybe some of these imaging options. That's very helpful. I mean, it sounds like there definitely are a lot of things that can be utilized and depending on the patient and the medicine team and the consultants, uh, there are some options for these patients that are a little bit trickier to diagnose. So it's excellent to always have the most resources at our disposal. Let's talk about the options for treatment and generally what your approach is when you're evaluating a patient and you're suspicious that this could be calciflaxis. Yeah. So regarding the treatment, I think what's really important to stress is that this needs to be a multimodal approach with involvement of many different disciplines. Mm -hmm. So not only having close involvement with pathology, but also close involvement with just the general primary care doctor or inpatient team, perhaps a cardiologist, if there needs to be a change in anticoagulation and then pain management, because pain is actually a really significant concern with this disease. So in terms of a multimodal approach, kind of the big thing to focus on is early treatment initiation with sodium thiosulfate. And so traditionally this has been done intravenously, 
but we have put some work out there showing the benefits of using interlesional sodium thiosulfate as well. And this can be useful for patients who might not have end-stage renal disease or are not getting dialysis in general. And that setting up for the three times a week infusions might be a barrier to care. Other things to consider are normalizing metabolic parameters. Wound care is also extremely important and can often be forgotten about. As I said before, infection is the number one cause of mortality in these patients. So using topical antibiotics as needed and non-stick dressings, topical debridements are all very helpful. Norfarin has also been implicated as being causative in calciflaxis, and so switching to a non-warfarin anticoagulation is very important. Other medications that could be helpful are pentoxifiline and sildenafil. And as I mentioned before, pain management should not be overlooked. Many of these patients have very excruciating pain, and it, this can really impact their quality of life. And so getting pain management on board early is important. And then you mentioned something about the management approach, the work approach. Yeah. So where in the timeline of seeing these patients are you likely to start, for example, IV uh, sodium thiosulfate or intralesional, depending on the patient? I think sometimes the concern is that people want to be really certain about the diagnosis before starting these medications or, you know, more quote unquote aggressive treatment. But it sounds like also you've mentioned that you really want to be proactive in treating these patients early on. So how do you kind of balance that? How do you balance out those two competing desires? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think the biggest issue with calciflaxis is that a lot of people do get very nervous about starting treatment. And I know a lot of dermatologists would feel a lot more comfortable having that positive biopsy before starting treatment. But I, I can't remember the time lag from the work I did, but it's pretty significant on the order of weeks in terms of delay of treatment. If you wait on that positive biopsy, mm-hmm. if for any reason you know, I think at least if you're using intravenous sodium thiosulfate, you're not permanently obliged to keep the patient on that. You can always stop it. Mm-hmm. Patients are really closely monitored by nephrologists and the dialysis team for any sorts of potential side effects like metabolic acidosis. And I think overall, the concern for side effects shouldn't really drive whether you want to start patients on that or not. If you're really nervous, you can always try the intralesional sodium thiosulfate. And overall, if you do really want to hold back on that, at least pay attention to switching around the anticoagulation, optimizing their mineral parameters, and getting really good wound care. But I think given the risk of these lesions for progressing to worsening ulcers, which I've seen many times, and the subsequent risk for infection, I think overall would recommend early treatment with sodium thiosulfate. Thank you. And you make a good point that that can be kind of, you know, stopped at any time and sometimes can really help the patient out early on to uh, eventually not progress to more aggressive and serious disease. Dr. Dobry, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on from our, this paper or discussion today that we haven't explicitly talked about yet? Yeah, I think there's a few things that are a little bit interesting. Um, one of them is the special site presentations of calciflaxis. So those would be presentations in non-adipose rich sites. So this might be April areas or 
say, in men on the penis. And these can be very tricky to diagnose, but they're very important to diagnose because they can be associated with actually a higher mortality. So a previous piece of work that we did was focusing on penile calciflaxis. And these patients at three months had a 50% mortality rate compared to 14% for patients with non-penile calciflaxis. So this is a very significant difference, more than three times the mortality. And this can be really tricky in terms of diagnosis because for these special sites, both the penis and on atrial sites, biopsy becomes a lot trickier. So for these patients, you do want to fall back more on some other common clinical presentations in that these are exquisitely tender, look for these retiform changes, and use kind of other clues in terms of whether these patients do tend to have intact distal pulses. If you're looking at atrial ulceration, when you're comparing to patients who have peripheral vascular disease. And again, you can also use imaging for these patients. And we actually recommend that over doing biopsy on these sites, given the high risk for poor healing. Another thing to mention is talking about non-nephrogenic calciflaxis. And I just wanted to mention that we prefer the term non-nephrogenic calciflaxis as opposed to non-uremic calciflaxis, because I think it more accurately reflects that this is a disorder related to at least calciflaxis in general to kidney dysfunction and that these patients don't tend to have true uremia. So for non-nephrogenic calciflaxis, that can be very tricky. Dr. Siddhar Nidwakar, who's a nephrologist that we work with closely, has done some work into this to understand what might be risk factors and found in his paper, he actually pointed the four W's of non-nephrogenic calciflaxis as the people more typical to get it. So this would be women, people who are white, overweight, and people who are using warfarin. And I think non-nephrogenic calciflaxis is a really interesting thing to look into more to further understand the pathogenesis of calciflaxis because a lot of these patients do have normal mineral parameters. So there must be something else going on. And one common thread that might unite everything is whether vitamin K might have an important role in the pathogenesis. So vitamin K is known to have a role in regulating calcification in general in the body. Patients with non-nephrogenic calciflaxis, we have found to have other significant comorbidities, including liver disease, obesity, and gastric bypass. And many of these patients might often actually have deficiencies in vitamin K. So I think that's something to look forward to more in the future for further research. So these are both two excellent additional points to talk about, you know, the special site uh, calciphylaxis and also patients with non-nephrogenic calciphylaxis. So I think that one thing I've learned the hard way is if a patient has a diagnosis of peripheral vascular disease already, and then you're consulted for worsening peripheral vascular disease, to always have calciphylaxis on your differential because it can be so tricky, especially if someone has had some other longstanding lesions. And to your point about considering, you know, imaging over biopsy. I think that's so important in those patients, given the locations. So it's interesting. I noticed that that was, you know, one of the top misdiagnoses and that makes so much sense. Yeah. And to interrupt briefly, I just want to recommend that people who are listening to this definitely look at, at the table within our paper, um, table four, because it does have a very good explanation for all of these different clinical mimickers, how you can kind of distinguish these subtle clinical features from the distinguishing features of calciflaxis. 
Yes, I want to put a plug in for that table as well, because it is truly so full of so many pearls and so much really high yield information, because again, those really are the more common misdiagnoses and common triggers. And it gives you some really practical tips when considering them on your differential. And then to your point of non-infogenic uh, calciphylaxis, I think those, those patients are really tricky because, you know, when you see somebody with end-stage renal disease, calciphylaxis is pretty high in your list if you're getting this hospital inpatient consult. But for the patients that don't have kidney disease, it can be a lot trickier, you know, to remember to, to keep this on your list and to really have a high suspicion for it, especially in the less classic presentations, probably the ones that are being diagnosed more with cellulitis, but yeah, such great points and really just a wealth of, of information. Dr. Dobry, can you actually just provide the name again of the nephrologist that you mentioned had done some work on the non-nephrogenic and stage renal disease? Yeah. So his name is Dr. Sadar Nidwatar. Okay. And he works very closely with Dr. Daniela Krasinski at MGH. And they essentially, all of my research that I've done with her has also been with him. And I think it really speaks to the importance of trying to reach out of the bounds of dermatology a little bit and work with our colleagues and, and learn from them and actually improve patient care for patients presenting either to dermatology or nephrology. So Absolutely. We're so fortunate to have colleagues and other specialties who really help us out so much with diagnosing our patients. So Dr. Dobry, thank you so much for being here today. That was just a really excellent synopsis of your work. And I think provided a lot of really excellent pearls for patients who are going to be seeing, for dermatologists who are going to be seeing calciphylaxis in the future in terms of better diagnosing and treating them. And with a lot of great tips for how we can best evaluate these patients. Thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm excited for people to learn a little bit more about this disease. I know it's very mysterious to a lot of people. And, and one of my old attendings said it would straight fear into her heart when she would get a patient with this. But I think that it's just important for us to continue talking with other dermatologists and our other colleagues about these patients we might encounter and how to get them work up kind of ASAP and get them treated as soon as possible too. So Thank you again for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you everyone for listening today. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.